And is it easier to find 300 customers willing to spend $100? Or is it easier to find 30 customers willing to spend $1,000? I'd actually say the luxury route is easier. The target is a bit sharper. So I feel like 3,000 people, you've got to create something for everyone. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Design Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Grove, and with me from the Philippines or <laughs> Vietnam, <laughs> Daryl Villanueva from Bandit Nine Motorcycles. Hey, guys. We are talking to you from the hospitality of, uh, tell us about this shop here. Uh, it's uh, Royal Enfield, um, and Royal Enfield is uh, and was a British motorcycle company uh, born from the war, uh, and they're here in Vietnam now, and um, their holding group has Harley-Davidson, Triumph, and Royal Enfield, so we're here in one of their showrooms. Oh, great. Yeah. So thank you, Royal Enfield, for letting us chill here today. I think yeah. uh, one of the cool things about this location is that one of your bikes is here. Yeah, that's right. So we did a collaboration, um, I think it was last year. Uh, Royal Enfield Saigon asked me to make a uh, motorcycle for them uh, based on one of their models. Uh, so it took us about a year, actually, uh, to complete that one. And about halfway through that build, Royal Enfield UK called me and asked me to do one for them, too. <laughs> So, uh, you know, we only had about three months, actually, to build the second one. And that's the one that you can see over there. So, Daryl is a motorbike designer. Am I? <laughs> a motorbike, motorbike artist. He has a, a motorbike company called Bandit 9. Yeah. Um, most of the stuff you guys make is limited mm -hmm. edition. That's right. Yeah. yeah, most of the pieces that we do are limited edition, and they're always limited to about nine pieces each. And then we'll retire it. Yeah, and then we'll have to create something new. Um, the reason we did that is because... Why did I do that? <laughs> I did that because it kind of forces me to come up with something new and not bank on some... Uh, you know, a hit design, for example. So I constantly want to just push. So I don't know how much detail we'll get into the history of Bandit 9 because sure. you were gracious enough to do a, right. a presentation that is actually the most watched view, the is most it? watched video on our YouTube channel. Is it really? Yeah, it is. Oh, that's good. That's good, man. That was fun, actually. Yeah. And uh, you go into a lot of the detail about the hows and whys mm -hmm. Uh, to the found the founding of Bandit Nine, mm -hmm. so I suggest you check that out. There'll be a link in the description or sure. up here in the card thing. <laughs> there. Okay. Uh, yeah. And before doing Bandit Nine, you were a uh, like advertising type person. Yeah. So uh, I'm not a mechanic. I'm not an engineer. I'm not even a 3D guy. But um, I guess my professional journey started in. The United States. Yeah, I studied graphic design there. And after, well, actually, while I was still a student, I was already hired um, in an advertising agency. So that's where it all really started. And wow, I think I was only 18, 19. 
Yeah. So I spent about 10 years there, uh, going from Los Angeles to Dubai to Vietnam and then Beijing. Yeah. You have a bike called Dark Side. Yes. Now, is that Dark Side like the... Star Wars Dark Side? Like the Dark Side of the Force? Or is that Dark Side like, is it the DC comics? No, it's, it's actually Dark Side of the Moon. Like Pink Floyd? Yeah, kind of, I guess. Because it was... Um, what I said about the Dark Side is it's kind of a moonshot. Okay, it's our first relatively large motorcycle build and it's uh quite complex as well so it's it, you know if you take a look at the tank it's got a mixture of this round you know uh portion that magically somehow has become a sharp edge <laughs> yeah so it was really really tough to build so does the toughness of a build um go into consideration when you decide if a concept's gonna go into production I do. I do very carefully, actually. I have a lot of designs that I don't use because I feel like we're not ready. Okay. So we have one called the L concept. I did that two years before we actually started building the bike. And that's because I knew we weren't ready. It, it, it's a really complex piece. So I had to wait for the right time to... Did it finally Begin. go into production? It did. It did. We did it, I think, last year, actually. Or two years ago. Jeez, I can't remember now. Yeah. Are all of your bikes rideable or are some of them just meant to be looked at? Let's put it this way. They function. Okay, they're all functioning pieces. Um, obviously, some are more rideable than others. Um, the L concept, for example, is a little bit tougher because what I do with Bandit 9 is I try to challenge... Um, norms you know what i mean so with the l concept i i I wanted more of like a pod racing kind of grip you know what i mean so it's a little bit closer and kind of feels like you're riding a horse rather than a motorcycle when you're stretched out yeah uh riding a horse yeah okay so you mentioned how dark side was one of your first forays into a larger engine what Mm -hmm. kinds of like starting points do you have what bikes do you build from Mm -hmm. you know or are the bikes built from scratch or are they more like a modification of pre-existing models they're okay for legal purposes okay especially when importing to different countries it requires a frame and engine number right um so what we actually do is customize i would say 95 percent of the piece so, you know, uh, the smaller motorcycles that we've built in the past are based off of Honda 67s, Honda Supersports, but they don't look anything like no. the original thing. And, you know, however, we do have to keep a portion of the frame original because of the frame number. Just the portion with the number? That's it. <laughs> Is that <laughs> that's original. That's all that's left. I mean, could you cut that off and put it on a completely different frame? You could, but you run the risk of, um, for example, customs officers checking your VIN number. And if it has a history that belongs to a different frame, they won't allow it. So like, how much of a frame can you actually alter and not cross some threshold of customs officer ire? For example, if I take a Harley um, VIN, and slap it on a Triumph VIN, 
that's that's going to be a no-no. You know what I mean? But if I use the original Harley Davidson frame and chop the hell out of it, I'm pretty sure it'll go through. I don't want to push it though. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you're starting with the engine and frame. When you are prototyping your, I know prototype is not even the right word, but mm-hmm. when you're first concepting. Yeah. Actually, what's your concept process like? What's my concept process like? That is difficult. Whenever I'm starting something new, okay? I actually don't look at motorcycles. You know what I mean? Um, I really look at my original source is usually sci-fi, anything sci-fi. So I'll, you know, check out a movie or read books even. And, you know, if anything catches my eye, I'll know it and I'll try to design something around it. Yeah. But then since you do have to, I guess, work around the confines of a frame, mm-hmm. um, do you like start with an image of the frame and build on top of that? Or? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, I basically have a general vision, you know, uh, a silhouette almost in my mind of what I want this thing to look. And so I'll work backwards from there. So I'll decide the frame uh, that kind of best fits that vision. And then we'll take it from there. And I'll start, you know, uh, like you said, start with the frame. And then I'll start adding the body and the details and things like that. And then we'll have a final concept sketch. Do you take like photos of existing pieces of metal and then reposition them on the... Yeah, yeah. In Photoshop so, or? That's right. So I'm not a 3D guy, I told you. So I have to do what I can with the tools that I have. And one of them is Photoshop. So I've been doing that for years. Uh, and yeah, you know, I'll take pieces of metal or even random things like musical instruments, you know, and start putting them on the motorcycle. It really depends on the situation. Yeah. Well, how much of it, how much of like the finished render is painting, like with the mm-hmm. Photoshop paintbrush versus? Uh, imagery yeah so uh we have a project coming up um i don't know when this is going to be released good question (laughs) but it's still a bit top secret um but uh for the next motorcycle it was probably actually i drew most of it the things that i didn't draw was were like the wheels and the engine you know Uh, because i want to keep the proportions correct uh, but the frame and the uh, body itself are all sketched. I find it sometimes when somebody is describing an image, mm. like specifically an image, okay. you know, like uh, the visual appearance of something. Yeah. How would you um, visually describe Eve? Okay, that's a difficult one. I can't remember how I, I, I remember how I discovered it. Actually, uh, what I mean by discover is that's where I, I find sources of inspiration in random places. And the Eve was actually based off a doorknob that I saw. And I just had this vision of this kind of bullet um, imagery uh, that's on top of the Honda 67. Um, so how would I describe it? Bullet is too easy. I, I actually think it feels more like a musical instrument to me. 
the way the, the curves are. Yeah, like a French horn, for example, or even a trumpet. Yeah. So it's, for those listening to the mm -hmm. podcast, it's the Eve was one of Daryl's uh, first bikes that he made after relocating his company from China to Vietnam, Yeah, right? That's right, that's right. Jeez. And in some, <laughs> I've seen you in your writing on uh, uh -huh. your fan page mm -hmm. make mention of the fact that Eve has a special place in your heart because it's kind of, uh, you know, you had you had press on your previous bike designs. Yeah, that's but, right. But uh, Eve kind of was <laughs> so iconic in yeah. its appearance, it just screamed from the page of a magazine. It would scream from the page of a design blog. Right. And it's really attention-grabbing. Mm -hmm. And if I was to uh, paint you a visual picture with words, if I was to describe it, um, it is based on a Honda 67. Yeah, that's right. It's very, I would say, very low. So, like, from the handlebars all the way back across the whole body to the tail, it's... Yeah, almost one height. Right, and then um, the main body looks kind of like the main body of the original S S Starship Enterprise. Yeah, where it's kind of. cylindrical. Yeah, a bit rounded at the at the front and right. coming to a tapered point at the tail. Yeah, that's about right. The whole thing in chrome. Yeah, that's right. Just m perfectly mirrored chrome. Yeah, height with mirrored surfaces. You know they show off imperfections pretty well, mm -hmm. right? <clears throat> Any kind of reflective surface would... Um, I, I think that's a good thing, actually. Yeah. Um, maybe it's a bit of a balance because the, ha uh, the motorcycles are handmade. You know what I mean? Um, it's really a blacksmith hammering this thing out of a flat sheet of metal. And I feel like if... You take a look at stock motorcycles. Um, yes, they're perfect, but they also feel kind of cold at the same time. So the imperfections are kind of nice, in my opinion. Yeah. As long as they are skillful imperfections. Right, right, right yeah. So I, I feel like um, there are a lot of, especially in watches, how they say that they're handmade. Yeah, they're handmade, but, you know, a machine kind of like, punch these things out and then they're hand polished for example or hand assembled but to really cut things out of metal you know and kind of like Tony Stark that thing <laughs> is a different skill altogether you know <laughs> Tony Stark that thing <laughs> um, which works of fiction are the most you know uh, inspirational to you for my designs Either way, like in your life or, or, or specifically to your bikes? Works of fiction. Well, that's tough, man. Because I like all science fiction, actually. I, I like the, the science fiction that's a little bit tougher, um, that requires a lot of thought. So anything that has to do with time, <laughs> I usually, you know, I, I'm usually really into. Um, does that include time travel? Yeah, that's yeah. right. So anything with time travel, I, I find really interesting. Um, I really like Interstellar. You know what I mean? So they've got a lot of uh, proper science into it, which is really cool. And uh, the designs are pretty nice. They're not out of this world. You know what I mean? 
um, but they're pretty far out there at the same time. It, it feels like they really function. Uh, so that kind of stuff I do like. Uh, I also like retro stuff, uh, things like Blade Runner. You know what I mean? That guy just died. I forgot his name. The the book the, guy or the movie guy? The um, the concept artist behind Blade Runner oh. just passed away, unfortunately. But he's got some really iconic looking uh, illustrations. Pretty cool. I think one topic that would be kind of interesting to know about is the difference between the design of a product and the art direction of that product's advertising. Mm -hmm. So you make a bike, mm -hmm. right? You design the shape of the bike itself, mm -hmm. but then you have to create promotional images. That's right. And those are also things that have to be further designed or, right. you know, so. And that's where I'm uh, the biggest prick, <laughs> I would say, actually, um, because I know it super well. You know what I mean? So motorcycles, I'll happily admit I'm not, you know, I don't claim to be a super expert uh, guru or anything like that. Um, but I do have some pretty professional background when it comes to marketing and imagery. So I'm really picky about that. But do you make most of those images yourself or do you work with other uh, artists or studios? Right, right. So um, fortunately, during my ad days, I met uh, a guy named Jeremy Wong from Nemesis Pictures and he's from Singapore. So um, fortunately, he likes what I do, right? And he likes to come down and shoot these bikes. So I owe him quite a lot. Uh, on top of, uh, after that, I'm sorry, after the shoot. By the way, the shots are pretty much perfect you know what i mean um you mean um before post before post it's like perfectly lit we do it in one go we don't shoot the tank then shoot the wheels then you know what i mean and piece it together in photoshop we don't do that it's just shot in one go uh so that guy's a craftsmanship uh cra craftsman sorry um but then i'll take over and post and what he, he makes my life actually quite easy. I don't have to do much. Uh, all I have to do is clean it up a little bit. Let's say the floor, for example, or any um, slight reflections, especially with my bikes. It's really tough because it's all chrome. Um, and then I'll give it a look. You know what I mean? Uh, how the images are art-directed, for example. That's when I take over. Right. You have... I would say two kinds of images that you would make for something like this. You have the just straight up product image right. on probably a white background. Yeah. But then you have your more emotional mm -hmm. images mm -hmm. with the smoke and the black. And oh, the, right. That's what you mean. Yeah. Uh, I see. I see. Yeah. I'm very changeable. You know what I mean? So it depends really on the motorcycle and it depends how I feel. <laughs> you know. So I'm going to throw up the advertisement, I think, for Dark Side. Yeah, the Dark right Side. Here. Yeah. Um, it looks pretty crazy. It looked, like some, it, it looked like Kylo Ren before there was Kylo Ren. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Started that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Actually, what we were going for was a Destiny kind okay, of Okay, yeah, look, yeah. You know? Um, a hooded figure with a gun. And I, at least at the time, you know, uh, in the custom motorcycle scene, you don't see a lot of fun imagery. It's always pretty much straight up photography and not even great 
sometimes. So yeah, with the dark side, since we were already pushing our limits, we might as well do it in every aspect. Yeah. Did you ever watch um, shows like American Chopper? Yeah, I did, actually. Um, it's too much reality. <laughs> reality for me. <laughs> too much reality? But um, actually, I was watching it so I could pick up a few tricks. And to be honest with you, I can't remember what tricks I picked up. But to see these guys struggle, you know, to experience the same struggle... It's kind of comforting. All right. You know, even with these, you know, super pros are struggling. So what are, when those guys are making choppers, mm -hmm. right? They're starting with Harleys in most cases. Sure. Yeah. I guess Harley frames and engines kind of like mm -hmm. you might do. That's right. Um, but from that point forward, is like what they're doing similar to the kinds of thing you do or is it quite different? Uh, it's quite different, I would say. Okay. Um, I know that they do in-house projects, um, but I also know they take on a lot of clients and they'll usually, well, yeah, obviously they're paying for it, you know, appease the requests, okay? I don't like to do that um, because after 10 pretty brutal years in advertising, I'm tired of taking requests, you know what I mean? Especially when they kind of screw up the integrity of the bike mm -hmm. or the ads. Okay. You know, I'm never going back into advertising even if I fail. <laughs> well, Nobody's going to hire me anymore. I mean, are you, are you failing or are you doing well in no. your business? Yeah, we're doing okay. We're doing pretty good, actually. We're very, very lucky, I would say. You know, never in a million years that I think I was going to survive as long as I did. You know what I mean? Purely doing Bandit 9. What did you think that you were going to be doing? Um, like jumping into a startup is pretty scary. There's a lot of things to consider. Like, did you save up enough money to be able to, uh, you know, eat while you pursue something that may not generate income for some amount of time? Right. And um, sometimes when you're doing that scary thing, you're like, well, I have this backup or some people... Yeah, not maybe just jumping off a cliff and it's this or die. So, I, I yeah, I I didn't really dive into it. You know what I mean? I still held my advertising job, fortunately. You know, so I don't have to panic when there's no orders. So you'd made more than one bike before you quit your full time. Yeah, advertising I made job five actually before I quit my full time job. I wanted to see do. There's so many unknowns when you start a business, right? And what I, I wanted for sure was to make sure that the decisions I made were good business decisions, not based of, God damn, I'm hungry, um, my rent's coming up, I'll slap together a oh. few things. So I, you know, I was pretty conscious about that at the start. And I wanted to prove that, you know, it was going in the right direction. I can leave my full day job. But it also sounds like you didn't want to make short-term business decisions. You didn't want to be forced into selling a bike or adding a feature to the bike because you needed to ship it now. You kind of wanted to... I'm, I'm, just, I'm really guessing mean? at this point. What, what do you mean by that? Oh, well, because you said... 
you didn't want the fact that you need to eat to force business decisions. Right. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to kind of elaborate on what that might mean. What that might mean. Yeah. Let's say I get out of my day job, right? I feel like reality is going to hit you very quickly if you're not prepared. So if you're renting or if you've got a mortgage, that's additional weight on you. If you have children or a wife, that's going to put a bit of pressure on you. Uh, food, pressure, I don't know, anything, right? And I didn't want to, I, I wanted to separate that um, from making my business decisions. So my game plan was to, number one, learn the business a little bit, understand you know, who's interested, who wants to buy, uh, is this actually going to be feasible? And if it's trending towards yes, okay, check. Um, and the most important move that I made was I saved up. I saved up enough cash for about a year of complete failure. So I don't have to worry about having a roof over my head, food, whatever. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, how long did you did it? How long between the time that you left your full time job was it until you launched Eve? About a year, actually. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. The, but when I left my full time job yeah. to Eve, or you were doing it full time in China before? I did. I did. I was doing it full time, actually, now that you mention it. I did it for about three, four months. So I left my job and then I kickstarted Bandit 9. And then I, have, I had three, four months before I moved to Saigon. And the reason is, this is bad. <laughs> <laughs> But the reason is I wasn't liking who I was becoming in China. I was trying to think of a nice way to do it, so I'll just talk about myself. But um, life there is harsh, I would say. The way people treat each other, at least from what I saw, I didn't like it. You know, so I, I remember the time that I, I really realized it is I was going home and it was like really, really cold. Okay, maybe not minus 20 degrees. It's snowing. And I passed by this fight, a guy holding a plastic chair versus a guy with a broom. And I just walked right in between them, like, excuse me, you know, as if it's normal. And that's when I realized that, you know, I've been so desensitized to this kind of behavior and what's the word? Not so friendly environment that when I came back to Vietnam on vacation, yeah, I, you know, I just saw how people are supposed to treat each other with kindness. You know, that's what I love about this country, actually. And how long have you been here now? Um... Sorry, distracted by that. Uh, since 2014. So, geez. Oh, man. I think I just turned six here. That's crazy. Yeah. Like, 
maybe on the dot, man. Six years ago from the date of this recording, not the date of this airing. Right. <laughs> it's 2021 now. <laughs> What's the top secret information? Um, I don't even know, man. Not, nothing really. Top secret information. Okay, sure. Um, we're going to do something with Triumph. Oh. Uh, which is pretty cool. And uh, this year... I'm trying something different with Bandit 9. We're going to release less motorcycles. Actually, we're going, going to release one and see how that goes. Okay, less designs, but more copies of each design? No. Actually, it's going to be one design. Uh, same story, limited edition. But it's going to be at a different level. A much higher tier. Okay. Um, and I've been wanting to do this for some time maybe a year or two now, but I haven't been able to achieve it because we're too busy. And if we're going to take it to the next level, I need my guys completely free and focused. Yeah. Is that next level means it's more complex or more expensive materials or? All of that. Yeah. Yeah. So the design is much more complex. In fact, I don't even know how to, put it together myself in my brain. Um, it's going to be done with precision machines. We've never done that before. That means it's going to require 3D work, which we're about to do, um, and the materials themselves. So I'm, depends when this comes out, but I'm planning to do the whole thing in leather, actually, the main body work, completely enclosed in leather. Do you need a leather worksman? Maybe if you have one. Because I, I got a guy. <laughs> oh, that's good, man. Yeah, it's so the, sure, why not? It, the design is um, based on a mobula ray. It's kind of like a stingray, uh, underwater creature stingray. Uh, so what I was actually imagining was trying to do the whole thing in stingray leather. <laughs> <laughs> like the actual Let's animal. Let's see what happens. It might be more water resistant. Yeah, that's good, man. You know? No, it's 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 a really nice material, you know. So if you've ever st seen stingray leather, it's got this these tiny bumps. I've touched top. a live stingray, but I've never seen stingray leather before. Yeah, I see. No, it's cool, man. Uh, so I don't know if that's going to happen. It's just an idea right now, and it's secret. All right. Well, if you're hearing this, it means the secret's out, <laughs> and uh, and hopefully that's, that's okay. <laughs> Cut. <laughs> Uh, what would you say to anybody out there who is like, I'm a designer, mm -hmm. but I've never uh, designed a motorbike that ended up becoming a motorbike? I mean, there might be someone who sketches bikes in their notebook, but they've never actually commissioned it to be made in real life or made it themselves in real life. So would I recommend, I mean, what would my advice be? What could be? they do? I mean, it... it no, do you get the I, full I, satisfaction out of it just being an image or does is is there a new level of satisfaction when you actually see it in the reality? You know, actually there are guys that do concept designs for motorcycles strictly. And whether or not it gets made is, I guess, up to uh, a client who may want to commission it. But I have seen some guys team up. A guy that 
strictly does um, concept designs with a guy that machines. Yeah. And um, so, what was your question? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, jeez, it's it's more like a advice for aspiring transportation designers. Mm -hmm. What would uh, well, it depends, right? I think it depends on what you want to do, uh, really. So if we stick to the motorcycle category, what is it that you like to do? Um, is your dream to work for a company like Harley-Davidson Triumph or Royal Enfield? Or do you want to start your own business? Um, simply making concept designs? or It really depends. Um, but I would suggest you just go for it, especially if you're young. You've got time. You know what I mean? Not like us, man. <laughs> we need our shit together. I've kind of was been hammering on this, this on this topic because if you have an idea for a piece of fashion, mm -hmm. you can go to a tailor I with, see. with some cloth in your drawings mm -hmm. and they will make it happen in a few days. Sure. Uh, and but the cost and time and materials to make a motorcycle are just so much. I mean, if you look at the cost of a shirt or a suit, right. you know, you're talking, you can buy a suit for a hundred dollars. Yeah. But how much can you buy a motorcycle for? Well, the good news is if you have a concept sketch, it kind of removes that particular item from the budget. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it does get kind of costly, especially it depends who you go with as well, you know? Um, so the guys that I know can range minimum, okay? Maybe 70K to six figures, easy. Yeah. 70K, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is like a, a, a you know, if you were a design student and you're like, oh, I've got my design, I want to have it materialized into reality. Mm-hmm. The, the reality could be you're facing a seventy k seventy thousand dollars to see your prototype. Well, you know, the thing that I would advise students to do is to just ask. You know, uh, I always say this: is just pick up the phone and call the place and see what's possible. You know, maybe they'll even do it for you for free or at a fraction of a rate. You know, especially if you're an aspiring designer, maybe they can help you out. Um, the guys in the industry are very friendly, actually. You know, they're very generous with their time and their advice and their wisdom. Um, so really, if you want to get into this, I really suggest you just pick up the phone and try. And is that like this... The guys in the industry, are we talking Vietnam? We're talking rest of the world, both? I, yeah, I'm talking about the rest of the world. Yeah. I mean, all Vietnamese people are pretty nice. So, you know what I mean? Um, but the rest of the world is really friendly. So I, I know guys from the West uh, of the United States to the East, and they're all really cool. Same with the Euro Europeans, actually. Uh, when I started out, I, used, I just simply actually called them and asked for advice. You know, I sent them my work. I told them, hey, man, what do you think? What's the next step? What would I do next? And they were like really, 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 really helpful. Do you have any plans to ever make an electric motorbike? That is one of the top secret ones, actually. Um, the tricky part is the, uh, the engineering. So 
I haven't found a guy that is well versed in electric motorcycles. And that is the missing piece right now. I already have a design here. The problem is I don't have a team assembled for electric bikes yet. I have a friend making an electric car here. Cool. Maybe yeah. he has some advice. That would be good, kind actually. Kind of a small three-wheeler. Cool. Or kind of like that idea. Is it two wheels in the front, one wheel in the back kind Something of thing? like that. Or it okay. might be just, might be four wheels. I, I think it's two in the front, one in the back, though. Right, like right. That. That's pretty cool, man. Yeah. It's like one of those classic, what, is it a Morgan, I think? Is that what you call those? I think Morgan has those, you know, two wheels in the front, one wheel in the back. Um, maybe I'll have him on one or two episodes after this one. Yeah. Yeah, he's just doing it. He's doing it, uh, self-funding it to... Cool. Because he... Because his friends said he couldn't. Oh, <laughs> so really? Like, okay, I'll show you. That's it. Yeah. That's how you get started. Now I'm going to make a electric car. Yeah. I, damn. Maybe I'll um, see if I can collaborate with this guy, actually. Because he might understand, like, the uh, electric sure. part of the equation. But I'm actually interested in doing a car. Oh, well. And customizing a car, car or just designing a car from scratch. The problem I always said about designing a car is there's a lot of work involved. I think it would depend on... Um, I don't think it's necessarily more work than a motorcycle. I mean, you got two more wheels, but... Right. Um, it, 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 for me, the, what I'm imagining is the exterior. Yeah. Um, so besides the production of it, the, yeah, designing the exterior, right? But I feel like the interior, I'll go crazy with. You know what I mean? Like, how do I design the steering wheel, all the little knobs and all the um, speedometers and gauges? They're all really cool opportunities. Mm. You know what I mean? So I feel like it would take me years. Yeah, depending on how fleshed that. out you want all that to be. Yeah. Teslas are kind of known for their sparse interiors. Right. They don't really have knobs, just a big iPad. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty know. cool, actually. I've been inside a Tesla a couple of times, and there's just something about it, huh? It's pretty cool. Even the way you just touch the doorknob, <laughs> and that doorknob pops out. Oh, yeah. Is it by waving at it? I can't remember. Or you just touch it? I'm not sure. Yeah. I saw a video by Rich Rebuilds of his door knob getting stuck in the ice. Oh, there. really? Oh, like that's crazy. Too cold outside, too much ice for it to pop out. Right. And then he couldn't Rose. open the door. What'd you think of the Cybertruck? I love it. Me too, man. Yeah. Me too. Some people don't love the Cybertruck. I don't, I don't trust those about. people. <laughs> those are, I would not trust somebody who doesn't like the Cybertruck. Yeah. I don't it, get it. It makes sense in many ways. Yeah. Like it's a, uh, I mean, the thing that I first thought of when I saw it was that they had had such production hell with the Model 3 mm -hmm. that he was probably like, okay, what's the simplest car we can build then? Right. That's what I would do in his situation. If I was in production hell on something, yeah. I'd be like, okay, for our next project, we're going to pick the easiest thing to make right. instead of the hardest, most yeah, complex, complex curves and yeah. all this stuff. Like, what is this? How, can we do, how do we pair this down? How do we make it more simple? Right. That's cool, man. No, I really like it. It looks like a, um, the hell do you call it? Like a DeLorean. It does look like a DeLorean. Right. Yeah. But kind of uh, tanked out. 
It's really cool. <laughs> yeah, it's basically a tank too, right? Yeah, it looks really cool, and I, I can't wait to see it in real life. Actually, and how big this thing is, because it's, it's supposed not, to be pretty it's big. It's as right? big as a Ford F one fifty. It's been a while since I was in the states. So yeah, but those. Do you have F four fifties? Do you see that truck? Yeah, it's at least as big as that. Jeez, man. The uh, it just went. But it's pretty spacious, right? Apparently. It uh, should be more spacious than a typical pickup truck because they don't have a tube frame. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, and, right. And they don't have a drive shaft. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, it's just, uh, what do you call it? Because it's all direct drive right. at the motors. So they don't need a big pipe going from mm. the engine to the, the tails. So that drive shaft stuff causes pickup trucks to be like uh, the seating area to be really high off the ground. Yeah. And, you know, also, so you're, the, to get into the Tesla uh, Cybertruck will require less stepping up in a way. And also you'll have like more leg room and things. That's pretty cool, man. Uh, Yeah. I'm a fan, I must say. And what I like most about it is the balls behind it. You know what I mean? It's a ballsy freaking move. I also, I mean, from the uh, announcement keynote, yeah, yeah, he showed like the the three competitors: the the Chevy and the Dodge and the Ford. Yeah, and pictures three in a row, and they all look the same. Exactly. It's like they, everything looks the same, and it's looked this way for the last. And he gave probably some real number that I don't know. Right. Right. Fifty years, hundred years, whatever. Yeah. And he's like, well, why just keep doing the same thing everyone's already already doing? Why not do something different? Right, right. right. It's, it's the same. Actually, it's the same thing when I started Bandit 9. If you remember the presentation that I gave for uh, DX Saigon a long time ago, I, I kind of did a similar thing. You know, the motorcycles today look kind of similar. And I don't understand why. You did say exactly that. Yeah, that was before the Cybertruck too. Many years. <laughs> I got Kylo Ren. Yeah. <laughs> Cybertruck. Um, but I'm not saying that we make, you know, bikes as cool as Cybertruck. That's not what I'm saying at all. But it's the same question that we ask all the time. Why does it always look the same? So, yeah, that's why I invented Bandit 9 is to just really just push the hell out of it. And we get a lot of hate for it too. Really? Yeah, like Cybertruck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. I get hate mail. It's pretty cool. Dear Daryl, your bike offends me. <laughs> yeah, like that. You, you think I'm joking, man. I'll send you a sample. Okay. <laughs> you can put it online and shame that guy. <laughs> why, why would you, why would, what objection do, could people have? It's all looks and not that functional or something like that? Or Yeah, that too, when they haven't even tried it. You know what I mean? It, the proportions are actually the same, as in... You, it looks like you're stretching out on the bike, but actually it's just the same as these guys. Um, another thing I get is that it's more the traditionalists. It's traditionalists that really don't like my stuff. They actually said, you're ruining motorcycles. As if that will have any effect <laughs> on what I do. Oh, yeah. Motorcycles were so great until Daryl yeah. came along with yeah. Bandit 9 and... 
<laughs> that's it, man. That's it. it, it it's pretty annoying. I, I must say it. I know I say that I don't get too, what do you call this, affected by it. But actually, whenever we get, you know, published on a motorcycle blog or, you know, uh, there's a lot of, I don't know if they're trolls, but, you know, there's a lot of comments. Usually it's negative and it's pretty discouraging. Mm. So I have to make sure that my guys don't read that stuff because it's pretty disheartening. You know what I mean? Especially if you're not used to it. This is a tough one because mm. part of me likes being critical. Sure, sure. I love criticizing stuff. Right. Um, I think that's part of being a designer, right? If we weren't critical of stuff, then we would never, what would we, what would we do? Yeah, well, it's not critical. There's a difference between critique and just being a dick. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's a lot of ones, puke or meh or nyeh, oh. whatevs or, you know, pass. So things that are kind of more destructive, if somebody said, oh, maybe it would be cool if it was more like this or I'd love it in black or, you know, I'm not sure that the round mirrors go with the square body, for example, I'm fine with that. It doesn't mean I'm going to do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, but I wouldn't mind hearing things like that. But it's just, it, it feels like they're trying to, you know, get you to engage. And I won't. You can't feed the trolls is what I've heard. All right. That's it. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, dude, I'm going to start fighting the hell out of the troll and I'll never stop. You know, so I really have to have that discipline to just not engage. Uh, it's certainly nice, though, when you receive positive feedback. Sure. Um, I don't see it <laughs> <laughs> because I refuse to look at the comment section. No, um, the positive feedback that we get is when somebody orders. You know, that's it. That's all that matters, actually, to me. Um, we do get some very, very nice emails as well. So those really make my day. And I like to tell them that, you know, we're, we're actually doing this for you guys. So I'm glad that they understand what we do. What's beautiful about your production model, uh, meaning about nine bikes per yeah. production run, per design, is that... You don't need a thousand fans, mm -hmm. or maybe you do. Maybe you need a thousand fans, and then, right. you know, some percentage of them have enough money to fulfill their desire right. for the product. But you're not necessarily you're not making something for everyone, right? It's, no, not, it's not the Model T, right? Ford, yeah, 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 for car for everyone, right? Um, Definitely. you just have to have enough demand for nine, yeah, which is I think. If that's what your business model is predicated upon, it certainly relieves a lot of mm -hmm. uh, stress, yeah. worry. So the limited edition 9 actually came very early on. And the reason I did it was because one is a hobby, 9 is a limited edition, and it feels more like a company rather than a garage. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's why I started uh, this nine business. The hard part about it is your revenue is fixed. 
you know? So for example, if you have three motorcycles, uh, sorry, three different designs a year, that's, uh, help me out with my math, 27. 27 pieces. So you're locked in place when it comes to revenue. So the question that I've been trying to figure out is, and this is a financial thing, okay? How can I make more by doing less? Does that make sense? Hence the one bike for the year thing. Exactly, exactly. That's going to be an expensive bike. Yeah, let's see how it goes. So this could be the very last time you see us. Wow. <laughs> that's, the, that's always the question. Back when I was designing a motorbike jacket mm. and I'm trying to I hit a certain that. price threshold because mm. I was intending it for the, the Vietnam market. Right. Uh, at about that time, I was at an airport and there was an Hermes store and they had right. a jacket that was kind of the same materials as mine. Sure. And they were charging $3,000 for their jacket. Oh my goodness. You know? And then I'm like, well, I could sell 10 jackets at $3,000 each. Or? Or I could sell three... 1,000 jackets for $10 each? <laughs> 300 jackets for $100 each. Right. And is it easier to find 300 customers willing to spend a hundred dollars or is it easier to find 30 customers willing to spend a thousand dollars i think it was a question i don't have an answer for that but that was the hmm. the koan that i asked myself yeah it's like mass versus niche i guess right um and for me i'd actually say the luxury route is easier you know what i mean because the target is a bit sharper. So I feel like 3,000 people, you've got to create something for everyone. And that is really difficult, in my opinion. And also, there's more risk up front because in order for your product to be priced uh, aggressively, affordable, you got to pump a lot of money into um, you know, the economies of scale. You know what I mean? You got to build more for the thing to be cheaper. And that puts pressure on you because you got to sell these things before you even make a buck. Not like the luxury thing or the higher end market where, let's say I designed for myself. I, I don't think I'm special or anything like that. I'm sure I can find 10 buyers <laughs> that who are exactly like me. And it won't take me, you know, a hundred different customers before I make a profit. Maybe it'll take one or two. That's it. So I don't know if that makes sense. Another aspect, I guess, of the luxury market could be, I don't really know. So Yeah, yeah, no worries. Me too. Love to uh, <laughs> pontificate on things I don't understand. Sure. Philosophize. Um, is the more money you have, mm -hmm. the less you mind you might mind spending money, even if it's a greater amount. Uh, and if, if, so like the number of ultra rich people in the world is a small number of people, mm -hmm. but maybe they don't mind just making impulse decisions on Lamborghinis every other day of the week. Right. Right. You know? So I think, 
if you're if you're living paycheck to paycheck, you have to save up to buy that bike. That's right. You know, that's right. And so then, we take and then you're like, I'm only going to buy one bike this year or for the next ten years. So which one am I going to get? Yeah. Um, whereas if you're like, oh, I have a bike collection. Here's a thousand bikes in this warehouse. Right. Oh you know, well. I think I don't know how if this even sounds bad. And obviously, I'm not super rich or wealthy or anything like that. But I have a feeling they perceive money in a completely different way than the other 99%. Do you know what I mean? And from what I read and from folks that I have met, they're actually even more frugal than the 99%. So you would think that they're just splurging, right? But I actually think they're incredibly smart mm. about how they manage their fa- their finances. So that's not the target. It's like the 98th percentile. Right. So there's, there, there's a book. Okay, so there's a book called um, I Will Teach You to Be Rich. Do you know about this? And he talks about rich life. Okay. And basically he teaches you how to structure your finances and try to imagine what your rich life would be. So for example, if your thing is motorcycles or sports cars, you don't have to feel guilty about spending on sports cars, but you'll need to be brutal, brutal when you cut costs in other places. Does that make sense? Misplaced priorities. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) That's it, man. So, yeah. So even, um, what's his name? Warren Buffett, who's like an ultra billionaire, right? Still lives in the same house uh, for so many years. And it's pretty um, humble, especially for his, you know. He has a yacht though, I think. Does he? Yeah. Yeah. But um, for example, if you look at uh, Justin Bieber or Taylor Swift, they've got mansions, they've got yachts, they've got, you know, it's all over the place. But there are guys that are a little bit more humble when it comes to their, to their wealth. How about your cl- your current clientele? Mm-hmm. What's the kind of different archetypes of customers that you've had? Sure. So there are guys. Um, I don't know how to categorize them. So we've got guys from college guys, let's say, all the way to uh, royalty that have acquired our pieces. So some are collectors, some are um, museums, some are companies. You know, all sorts. It's pretty spread out, actually. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything in common between all of them. Well, I've, I, I've heard stories before. I don't know if this was informally from you or in a more official capacity, but you've you've had several bikes go to a museum or something like that. Yeah. Right? Uh, some several bikes go to a dealership Mm -hmm. and then individual right individual purchasers as well sure um but i don't know how about like when you're when you release a new bike i imagine you've got a mailing list actually i don't you need to get one (laughs) you need a mailing list i'm the worst man whenever you're about to release a new bike you should at least let your Current, current base your current uh, customers right no right right i, should. I um, should that's a good tip they're the ones most likely to 
yeah. buy another one, I, I I would think. And but if you're only making nine, like how maybe you're already sold out before you've had a chance to talk to your your previous customers. Yeah. So I mean, we've been fortunate to have made really great relationships with museums and even um, distributors. Let's put it that way for now. So I would tell them if uh, I have, if I have a new design and, you know, I have relationships with guys that are, you know, in the upper class, you know, who have acquired more than one piece as well. So I'd usually mail those guys. Um, I don't blast everyone. I will. Um, but man, what was the question? Jesus. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it was kind of like, okay, um, it wasn't really a question. I'm just kind of curious about the mechanics of um, how I get it out there. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I just, I just feel that the, the dynamics must be very different when you're releasing uh, something where you have nine copies and you're doing that one to three times a year right. versus something more mass produced mm -hmm. or even something that was a digital download. Like, a, you know, if you're a musician and you have a new single out on Bandcamp. Right. Maybe I, th you know, you need to sell. Again, it's getting back to the previous topic. You have to sell thousands or millions of yeah. those dollar downloads to make bank. Right. So, again, um, it's just my style, okay, of running a business. And I like to mitigate risk a lot. Uh, I'm not a wealthy dude. I cannot just throw cash at something. You know what I mean? I've got a family to look after too. But um, when it comes to my stuff, what I'd like to try and do, so for example, the Eve, I just put up the concept design online to see if anybody was willing to pitch in a deposit so that we can fund the project. So that's not me putting cash into my business. Great. <laughs> that will be in the recording for sure. <laughs> That's Yeah, so it's not me putting cash into my business, you know what I mean? So it's it's very calculated that risk. Um do you do that for all your designs? Do you um sell them based on concept art before you go into production? Yes and no. Um the last two projects or the one that's coming up right now and the previous one. So the previous one was for uh a luxury department store called Lane Crawford in Hong Kong. Um, I just approached them and said, hey man, I think we should do something together. I want to put my bikes in your shop. And they're like, cool. And I asked for a budget and they gave it to me. <laughs> so, you know, um, uh, so I got funding for that to create, you know, uh, the last two uh, iterations of Eve, okay, which I wanted to do, especially for this uh, store. Uh, the one that I have for Triumph I also pitched them, and fortunately, they gave me the motorcycle, the base, as well as the uh, funding for the prototype. So again, it's not me, you know, putting cash in into projects. It's me finding a way to uh, mitigate some risk. I sound like it's a pussy. Nice that, it? It's nice that it works out that way. Um, yeah, I've been lucky, man. Very lucky. I'm trying to think of. In like the world of game game development, for mm -hmm. instance, uh, 
or even jacket or bag production, the cases where that would, where the, the situations where that would be the same. Cause, yeah. uh, I mean, you would normally you'll do a Kickstarter campaign mm-hmm. and, you know, reach out to thousands of people to try to fund the game development or part, part of the game development right. or fund the garment production. So, uh, and I guess with a game, you could go to a, you can go to a publisher and say, Hey, I want to make this game and you can sell it. Sure. And, but you'll give me advance on the development costs. Right. I don't necessarily know of a similar situation for, f- for fashion other than mm. producing for a different brand. Yeah. It, or, sorry, excuse me. So I, I think it really depends on what you're doing. Oh, you know, actually, no, I'm, I'm wrong. Um, in fashion, you can bring your collection to a show, not not, yeah. not necessarily a fashion show. It could be a fashion show, but um, sure. like a trade show or a fashion show. And then you take orders from buyers, right? And then you go into your full production. That's it. That's yeah, it. yeah, that works. So that that's good. All right. Yeah, yeah, I think that's good. So it really depends. You have to be a little bit creative, I think. So it depends on what you're doing, right? If you're going to uh, if you're going to start up a cafe to a fashion line. I don't know what you're planning to do. I'm sure there is a way to make it happen. Um, you just have to really think about it. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm not a big fan of borrowing from banks because, I, as I said earlier, there's so many unknowns about starting a company and the first thing that is a certainty is that you owe fifty thousand dollars to the bank that's that sounds like the wrong place to start for me but Mm. i've never done that before and i'm sure it's happened beautifully for everyone but i I cannot imagine doing that especially when you know i don't have that kind of money to throw at a business you know i certainly spent a lot of time bootstrapping businesses and not having customers pay for it and uh i think your way sounds better yeah I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the uh, to the guys that you've spoken with. I'm sure they have really good advice too. I, I'm just going off of what I personally know, and it works for my personality type as well. You know what I mean? There are people that really believe in their business, go all in. That's great. That's not me. <laughs> I'm, I don't know if I really you know thought through the economics of what you did with Bandit Nine. Right when I first met you, but hearing about it in retrospect and thinking about it is, is pretty, uh, maybe for some people obvious, but for, for me kind of novel and something I want to keep thinking about. Yeah. You know, I've been talking to a lot of, uh, guys that want to start their businesses and people that are in the middle of it and finances is a serious thing that I think people should try and master, especially accounting. You know, it sounds really dry. For a lot of businesses, when you get investment, you would do normally is you would get investment. Yeah. But then you're not, it's, it's not that you've sold a product to a customer. It's that you've sold your part of your company to the investor. Right. Basically. That's it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like the biggest difference. Controlling. Like part of the reasons I think I've uh, in the past, try to self self fund a company is to not I think uh, that's right. you know take on investors 
because I saw you. I was like, hey, my friend doing motorbikes doesn't take on investors. Maybe you have. Yeah, but... Uh... <laughs> um, but, you know, when, yeah. when, the, when the final product is more pre-sellable, Mm-hmm. where you can take pre-orders on it, that's definitely seems like a good space to be in. Right, right. There's some like apps where I'm not sure people would be really that motivated to pre, pre-buy an app. Like, you're like, hey, this is going to be a dollar when it's in the app store, but you can pay the dollar now. The thing is, I don't know, I, I, I don't know that app business, you know what I mean? And But for me, and I picked this up from a book too, is that... You should test your stuff. The, you know, are people actually going to buy it? You know, do they like it? Um, is there a way to do it so that somebody else funds it? You know what I mean? Not necessarily sell your company so that you get funding. That's not what I mean at all. But perhaps there's a way to pre-sell. You know, I think, yeah, even Tesla will do it, right? Yeah, they Pre-orders do and things like that, even though it's not ready. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it could be years between your... Right. And the... Uh, Cybertruck was a refundable one hundred dollar uh, deposit. One hundred dollars. Yeah, you know what I mean. Which is, um, you know, an interesting number. Yeah. Uh, but I, th- I think the Roadster was like, you have to just buy the whole thing or buy something, thing. and just wait. Yeah. Jeez. Well, but it's more limited. It probably it's right. not less mass market. So. Yeah, I mean, that's tough to do for a company that doesn't have any credentials, I would say. So Tesla has, you know, some history. He's got Elon Musk behind it, too. So it feels relatively safe. I, again, I don't have that cash to burn. You know what I mean? So I wouldn't put $30,000 into a car and wait for two years. I can't, I can't do that. Um, but for guys in startups, it's pretty hard. It's still pretty hard, man, to get pre-sales. It's got to be pretty appetizing, the deal. You know what I mean? It's weird because so many apps are basically free. If, right. if, if, you, if it was the early days of something like Facebook or Twitter, yeah. you're like, we need investment. And you're like, how much do you charge for your product? And you're like, hey, our product is free. But yeah. the point is we want to get a lot of users and then we'll show them advertisements. That's it. That's it. And uh, control their data. You know, but Yeah. But... I would guess at the time that that was still a weird idea. It's like it's not really a product; it's a service, and the service is free and ad supported. It's yeah. I'm not sure how to do it. I, I, yeah, investors. I, I've thought about this too, getting investors, but I'm not sure why. Well, if you don't need the money, then you don't need to get the investors. I mean, the the thing is, obviously, you know, I've got a big vision and pretty high targets and things like that. And an adrenaline kick of cash will certainly help us go there. Here's what uh, someone might do with your brand. Okay. They could say, look, we're producing nine by three X productions a year. Mm -hmm. And we're hitting this kind of um, medium Mm-hmm. price point right and you could say okay what we want to do instead is do one production run of nine that is more expensive right That's and good. then we uh 
want to do a production run of 30 mm -hmm. of some other design that's less than that and right. a production run of 500 yeah. of some even cheaper even easier right. to make different tiers right design yeah. and now you're able to and then also we're going to have ball caps and jackets or that Thomas will make and um, <laughs> and now we can engage customers at different yeah segments uh, segments oh. you know but each of those things adds more headache for you as well, right? You'd that's have true. To... Actually, that's a really good point is that I started Bandit 9 um, because I like motorcycles. But two, to focus on my personal life. You know, so for me, cash is not the most important thing in the world, to be honest. Like I value my free time a lot, actually. And... That's why I work really hard on Bandit 9, is to make sure that I protect my free time, mm -hmm. if that makes sense at all. Does that work for you? Are you able to carve your time? I am. I am. Um, I choose pretty harshly about how I spend my time. So, you know, I'd say I, I don't work crazy, crazy hours, man. Actually, the opposite. You know what I mean? So, what's this called? You know, I'd like to spend time with the wife and focus on that more than the motorcycle thing. You know, so I'm happy with my personal life and my work life. Great. Perfect. I don't need more. It's tough when your work life starts to overlap with your personal life. Yeah. Like you're supposed to be on a dinner date with your partner and instead you're uh, with your love partner. Right. And instead you're sending messages on your yeah. mobile phone to your business partner. You yeah, know. It, it actually is, it feels a little bit like cheating, I would say. I, I can I can see that, you know what I mean? Like you're supposed to be spending time with your loved one, but you're kind of like betraying them at the same time, <laughs> you know, with somebody else uh, absorbing your attention. Yeah. You know? so, uh, or uh, canceling dinner because you have to, Right. Keep working late or whatever. Priorities are backwards. So, and I, I learned that the hard way with advertising. That's why I left. I'll say in, uh, there's a couple ways that you could look at this. In, in one way, when you are, uh, though I think the worst, the worst situation is that you have, that you're supposed to be doing something social together. Right. But, you are working and they're waiting for you. Right. That's the worst, right? Uh, better situation, not necessarily bad. You both have work to do and you've decided that, hey, we're going to spend the next two hours and work next to each other. Right. And then the best is probably, hey, I'm at my office and I'm working. Right. And then when I, when I leave the office, I turn off work yeah. and I just focus on something else. Right. So I'd like to be in the third camp, to be quite honest with you. And it, I did learn the hard way. I think I was number one, you know, option one <laughs> for 10 years. And then, yeah, that didn't go so well. Right. So I, I knew what was wrong, 100% my fault. And I really changed, changed myself and changed the game where... It's more about being present, you know? So we're chatting now and my attention is completely on you. I'm not thinking about work or anything like that. 
uh, unless you ask me a question about work. Right, right. So same thing goes for my wife is that um, when we're having dinner, I, my phone is face down and quite possibly not even on the table, you know. So it's, it's just the same. And when I'm at work, don't bother touching me. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'm super focused on depending on what I'm doing and who I'm with. I find that if you do have to work, mm-hmm. oh man, this is, this, is a, this is something that's come up many times. In uh, your life. In my life, where um, people are not generous when it comes to screen usage. Mm-hmm. So if you are in front of them and you're like, I have to do some work <clears throat> and now you're in front of your laptop yeah. <clears throat> and now you're in front of your laptop or your mobile phone mm-hmm. and you're giving your attention t- to that device, uh, they don't perceive it like you are working. Uh, okay. If you were like, I want to read a book, and then right. you like sat in a corner and you opened a book and you read, like if they were okay with you reading the book, they would have been okay with that. Interesting. So for things like work, it's it's uh, it's something that's a lot easier to do without guilt or without shame when you are at your office and not in the living room of a friend or a loved one. Well, if you said, uh, I have to go to the office for an hour to do some work yep. and you're gone and you're yep. working and then you come back. Right. It's just different than you're sitting there and your child's like tugging on your arm, right. asking for your attention and you're like, yeah. uh, not yet. I'm still working. I understand. It's, it's like a different flavor. That's it. But I mean, let me put it this way. You wouldn't, read a book on a date, right? <laughs> you, you might read a picture. You might read a book on vacation. On vacation. You know, if you went on a vacation uh, an extended with, your, period. with your couple. Would you work on a vacation? I would. Okay. I would try my best not to. That's us, man. You know? Yeah. Um, and I'm sensitive to it. I'm super sensitive to it too. So I'll give you an example. I am on time a lot of the times, except for today. (laughs) Um, I'm usually on time. I'm pretty strict about it. So when it's the reverse, for example, if somebody makes me late, that's really difficult for me. So it's the same thing. Just let's just use my wife for now. You know, I'm pretty sensitive about her checking up on her phone, chatting with other people are doing work while we're supposed to be right there. But I don't give a shit about it, so. But I'm, I, I notice these things. Yeah. Yeah, that's terrible, huh? <laughs> what about you? Uh, Does it bother you? It's hard to answer that without being a hypocrite. Because, no, like, yes, it bothers me. Yeah. Um, but I will do it to someone else. Right. I'm not sure, man. I mean, do you work in the theater when you're watching a movie? 
No, like, yeah, that bothers me too. Anybody yeah. who looks at their phone at all during a movie. Exactly. Or even at home watching Netflix. Right. It bothers me. Yeah. And like, if you don't want to watch this, we can turn it off and work. Exactly. <laughs> we don't have to watch this. Why do we That's have it. to play a game while this is playing? Mm. Or, but I, I went to film school. That was my background. Right. So I cool. kind of... You, you have a certain respect for... Watching a movie yeah. or TV show is like going to church for me. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It's like That's this it, religious yeah. experience of... It is. It is. Me too. I'm the same. People put the effort into making the thing. So if it's worth watching at all, I want to give yeah. it my respect. Right. Exactly. It's a little bit different if you're just listening to the news or something. I mean, yeah, whatever. Yeah. I don't, you know. Sure. Especially today. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're watching like Stranger Things or... Sure. Uh, me too, man. You know. I'm, and I'm sorry, bless my wife again for this because I'm pretty crazy about this stuff too. I don't want to be late to the movie. You know what I mean? If I miss two minutes of it, I'd rather not go. You know what I mean? Are you the same? Yeah. Are you a freak too? <laughs> yeah. I'm a, I hate making other people late and I hate being late myself. Yeah. Though I'm often late. Right. But uh, I try. You know, sure, sure, absolutely. It's easier in some place like Japan where the trains are on time, you yeah. know exactly when you leave, what time you're going to get to where you're going. That's it. Yeah, it's a little harder here where there might there may be traffic or there may not be, and yeah, how much traffic is there? It's hard to it's harder to gauge that. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to predict, especially if you're coming across town, mm. you know, but yeah, it, it's it's tough because I don't like making people late. But at the same time, I always want to get one more thing done before I go. Ah, okay. I'll be working on the computer. I'm like, oh, I've just, I'm so close to finishing this task. If I can just finish that right. and send it to the team, well, right. you know, then I can I do that. leave with good conscience. But right. those little tasks that take five minutes always take 15 minutes or 20 minutes or an hour. <laughs> yeah, for me, it will, it's priorities for me. So if I'm going to meet, uh, my wife or my dad or even a friend, I will prioritize that over work for sure. Um, but that's just me, man. It depends on the urgency of your task too. You know what I mean? And I think people will understand, but generally speaking, yeah, uh, you guys matter more. But we can always be better in relationships. We can always yeah, become man. better humans uh, despite yeah. There's We're, a lot of things I beat myself up on. Okay. And um, at the same time, I also hold the perspective of I shouldn't beat myself up on it too much because as long as I, as it enters in my aware, awareness as something that needs to be improved mm -hmm. to some degree or over time, maybe sure. it can be improved instantly. Maybe it will require a lot of effort, but. We should always try to be better. That's it, man. That's it. Every day. And be conscious about it. You know what I mean? That's what I'd say. Do you have anything else that you want to talk about? I have no idea, man. Oh, I do. I have a top secret project too, man. Um, dude, I'm writing a book. <laughs> Crazy as that shit. <laughs> 
uh, fiction? No, it's nonfiction, actually. And um, God, I, I don't like this term, but it's self-help. Okay? I don't like it because uh, all books help. So whatever. Um, but it's in the self-help section. So basically what I'm doing is I'm interviewing or I'm hoping to get 50 different motorcycle builders, designers, curators, museum curators, journalists, bloggers, anybody in the motorcycle industry. And the book is going to contain nuggets of wisdom about life, death, health, wealth, business, and adventure. So it's like a motorcyclist's guide to living life. Yeah. Um, how far along is that project? Right now, I think I've got about 20. Oh. 20 guys, 20 responses already. As in, I already have their, their um, stories and their, their nuggets of wisdom. Uh, out of my target was 50. I, if I can do more, I'll definitely do more. But I'm pretty sure I've gotten about 40 yeses already. When you approach them, do you ask for a specific type of nugget of wisdom? Or you say, here are the categories that you can offer one from? Mm, that's a good point. Maybe I should have talked to you. But I did it. Uh, I have a series of 10 questions, which took me a long time to do. You know what I mean? So, for example, one of them is, have you ever been in an accident? And chances are, yeah. <laughs> you know, so tell me about it. And what did you learn? Well, how did you feel? And that's what I'm trying to get out of the book is to, you know, there are a lot of books about wealth from billionaires and it's very hard to relate to, you know what I mean? But these guys are just regular Joes, you know, pursuing their dreams. And, um, and that's the kind of stuff that I'm trying to get out of them. So, you know, how to live life, you know, get your priorities straight, you know, focus on the things that matter. So it's not about cash, you know. Are you going to release it via Kickstarter or? That I don't know. Actually, I am supposed to pitch it to a publisher in a few weeks, but I'm so behind on everything right now. But I don't know if I'm going to do that or I'm going to self-publish it. But it's going to be a book, not, not a coffee table book with motorcycle pictures or anything like that. It's going to be, a, you know, a normal read-through book. Okay. <laughs> yeah. How much of it is going to be you writing from your voice versus how much of it is quotes or uh, pages of text contributed by the other? I, I think it's maybe the, the intro and the outro I'll do. And maybe I'll drop in every now and then. But I want the... I, I want their direct quotes. You know, there's some really inspiring stuff that they've told me and I can't wait to share it you know uh, really it's really gems I must say and I hope it connects with people so for example I've got the head designer of Royal Enfield participating in the book and the stuff that he says it applies to everyone you know what I mean so if you want to start your own business he's got some really good advice you know what I mean um, if you want to go on an adventure Here's why you need to do it. Why do you need to travel? He's got really cool reasons as to why. And most people, in my opinion, don't know that. And they don't understand that. So it's pretty interesting. Well, um, I hope that we can get a name for that or... I'm sorry? Like a, 
so if depending on when this episode airs, yeah, you yeah, know, this is probably not going to have been published yet. No worries. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's going to take some time. Uh, so keep your eye out for a future book from Daryl. Yeah. Oh, you want the name? Yeah. Oh, it's called Godspeed. Okay. Um, that's it for now. I don't have a sub. And working title. Working title. So it's called it Godspeed. Yeah. Tales from motorcycle professionals. Yeah, that's it, man. Daryl, thanks a lot for being on today's episode. Thanks. If people would like to learn more about you or Bandit Nine, where should they go? What should they check out? Vietnam. Come to Vietnam. <laughs> no, uh, so you can check out uh, banditnine.com if they want to check out my stuff. All right. Yeah. And you guys have an Instagram? We do. It's bandit9 underscore. Somebody took my freaking name. <laughs> and I have no idea how to get it back. Uh, thanks again I, to Royal Enfield. Yes, thank Ho Chi Minh City for letting us crash in your showroom here. Yeah, it's pretty cool. A lot cool, of huh? wonderful bicycles. Yeah. No, can I say bicycle? Sure. Why not? There's two, si- there's two wheels. Bicycle. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Bicycles, no pedals. That's it. Well, there's a sh- like shifting pedals and stuff. There is gears on the left. Good luck on your book and Thank on you. your productions this year. It'd be cool Jeez. to maybe catch up in a year and see sure. uh, what, if I'm still alive. Your predictions came true sure, or man. to what degree? I know. I hope so. Well, thank you very much, and we will see you later. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Just say it like that. That's good.